Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Uh, we are hosted on reformpodcast.com. Please check us and other podcasts out there, reformpodcast.com. But today, we're going to be talking about a controversial topic, very much so in the, especially in the Reformed world, topic of theonomy slash reconstructionism. And we're going to be doing so in light of uh, a recent Dividing Line episode that Dr. James White did. Um, as many of you probably know, Dr. James White has become a theonomist um, and post-millennialist. So, uh, but he had done a critique or a response to someone on Twitter who had spoken against theonomy. And so we're going to play through uh, this entire clip today. It's a little over 16 minutes, so... Maybe a longer episode today, but we think it's important to play it in its entirety. So we're going to be doing that um, and going through theonomy. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the concept of theonomy, theonomy is simply just God's law. Theo meaning God, uh, nomos uh, from the Greek meaning law. So it's God's law. Um, all Christians, all true Christians believe in theonomy at its basic level in the sense that we believe God's law applies to today. But if you're talking about theonomy from a reconstructionist point of view as a system of belief in terms of how the state is to uh, relate to God's law, etc., cetera, um, that becomes a very different discussion. And so we're going to be addressing a, a specific view of, uh, of God's law as it relates more to the theonomy uh, system of belief. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and dive into this. Sean, do you have anything to add before we dive in? Nope, that's good. All right, so here we go. Brother Chris. Can you hear uh, that okay, Sean? comment, and I said, I'm, I'm going to respond to that. Might as well, because it can be done properly, and I think it's useful. Um, this was back on the 13th. Just made a comment on Twitter. He says, I think the problem with theonomy is that you have unregenerate men attempting to apply and submit others to God's law. It didn't work in Geneva, and I don't believe it would work in America. Well, once again, the issue is what you think theonomy is meaning. And I think as more and more people recognize that the church needs to have a strongly prophetic message for the culture, the idea that something like the Noahic Covenant is enough. Or the idea that the general light of nature, folks, the general light of nature has a father in prison in Canada for trying to save his daughter from the insanity of transgenderism. So Dr. White is addressing, it, kind of going into some covenant theology here as it relates to... Um, God's law and the worldview that we should be essentially enlightening the world with. So he says that the Noahic, you know, is the Noahic covenant enough? Essentially, is what he's saying. Is the general light of nature enough? Now, what is the Noahic covenant? The Noahic covenant is the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis 8, Genesis 9, where he establishes in creation or with creation, he's never going to flood the earth again. He lays out general principles of how man is to conduct themselves, um, the death penalty being one of them, um, that 
this is how it's going to be for perpetual generations. And so he lays this out, and this is distinct from the Mosaic Covenant. This is before God's law was established with Israel, um, specifically in the ceremonial laws. But the importance of the Mosaic Law, or I'm sorry, the Noahic Covenant, is that the Noahic Covenant lays out how man is to interact and function um, apart from any specific religious system or belief. It's essentially a created order covenant, if you will. Um, and it's distinct from that ceremonial law that is, has specific religious practices or sacrifices. So it lays out how man is to act in general. And uh, David Van Drunen talks about this uh, in his book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, um, a, a biblical vision for Christianity and culture. He lays us out what the Noahic covenant is. So if you're using the Noahic covenant as an argument against theonomy, um, I think it can be very strong because the Noahic covenant does lay out specific created ordinances that are distinct from any particular religious covenant, like that have to do with circumcision, atoning for sin, etc. And so uh, I think that's uh, that's very helpful, and I don't think this is a very um, a very good critique on Dr. White's part. And then he talks about the general light of nature. Um, it, it almost seems like, and Sean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems like Dr. White is moving away from um, general revelation and focusing more on special revelation. Well, we need to have we need to have a prophetic word. We need to have uh, this word from God that's going to establish what a worldview is. And we would say yes if we want to flesh out that worldview, absolutely. But the general light of nature is very important when we're talking about uh, man's standing before God, his guilt before God. Uh, Romans 1 and Romans 2 make it very clear that we have the law of God uh, written on our hearts. We know God's law apart from the scriptures being revealed. Um, and we even know things in the created order that we are not supposed to do. Paul talks about homosexuality as a twisting of God's created order. And he lists other sins as well. But he also says that those who do such things know that they are uh, they know that those who do such things deserve to die. They know penal, uh, the, the penal punishment for those sins. They also know what they're not supposed to do. And that comes from the general light of nature. They have the law of God written on their hearts. They have the law of God revealed in creation, who God is and that he's to be worshipped. And so when they turn away from that, they're suppressing that. This is before they even have gotten to the scriptures or any kind of worldview being given to them. So right away, this this view that we have to somehow present uh, this worldview to man, either in addition to the light of nature, as if he's not going to know it without the scriptures, um, is not what Paul teaches. It's not what Paul teaches at all. So we have to be very careful when we're talking about the general light of nature. It does condemn, and God's law is there. God's law is there. And when we're talking about theonomy, we're not talking about whether God's law should be applied today or not. It's how God's law should be applied today. That's really the issue. So God's law is there, written on the hearts of man. Um, it's given to us through creation and revealed through that. And it's more specifically revealed in the scriptures. But what God has revealed in nature and through conscience is enough to condemn them, is enough to condemn them. So um, general light of nature is certainly enough in terms of uh, condemning man and certainly of uh, convicting him of sin, that foundation is already there. So it almost seems like he's saying, well, we, we need this, we need the scriptures in order to show that world. You don't. The, the cannibal 
in the jungle is going to be condemned because he twists God. He worships idols that are other uh, than God. And he suppresses that truth that he knows in his conscience through the law of God written on his heart. And uh, the second London Baptist confession of faith in the chapter on religious worship in the Sabbath days, chapter 22, the first part of the first paragraph says the light of nature shews that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all is just good and doth good unto all and is therefore to be feared loved praised called upon trusted in and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the might now notice that language at the end with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might what is that uh what is that uh, that is required that jesus said that's the first table of law right or that's the greatest the first and greatest commandment right to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and then loving your neighbor as yourself is the other part of that. It's summing up the law, right? So God's law is still here. God's law is still active. It still condemns. Um, but uh, we have to be very careful we don't move away from that. And he appears to be moving away from the general light of nature as being an important aspect of, con of God's revelation to man. And Sean, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. So I'll definitely at the very least add, um, because he's very focused in this clip on... Um, basically getting um, the cultural uh, decay. Oh, uh, Jackson commented, Jackson's a friend of ours. Um, uh, getting, uh, stopping the cultural decay that's currently going on. Yep. And the only point I would like to make is if the light of nature is not enough and if uh, the Noe covenant's not enough, if, if people are going to ignore that, what makes you think that they're all then going to obey the uh, judicial law? Um, it's the, the law is not able to get people to be righteous. Um, they need to be regenerated in order for that to happen. Um, and the, uh, Dr. White made a, a, a comment or a, a statement there that I want to spend a little time talking about. He said that the people are waking up the fact that the church needs a strongly prophetic message for the culture. Now, Dan, if I were to go to you and tell you this church has a strong prophetic message for the culture, what, what would you think I was referring to? I would probably, well, I, I, if you say prophetic, it probably sounds more like uh, Pentecostal in nature mm -hmm. to some extent. Well, well, I heard that and I, I immediately thought, well, yes, the church does have a strong prophetic word for the culture. It's called the gospel. Right. The, the, uh, we do. Um, so it was it's very bizarre to hear that and then to hear him go on and talk about the Noahic covenant and such. Because as we'll go through this, um, this clip, it'll become obvious that this prophetic word that he thinks the culture needs to hear so much about is um, you need to keep God's law, and the and then you'll be blessed. Essentially, the nation needs to keep God's law, and then they'll be blessed. And that is not the the word that we need to be given right now. Um, we need to be. There's no the gospel, gospel discussion in this video that I heard. There's anyways. not. No, there's not. And that, the, I know James White knows the gospel. I've heard yes. him say it multiple times. Absolutely. This is not us saying that he's he doesn't have the gospel. But one thing I have noticed with theonomists is in a lot of their presentation, the gospel actually gets lost and it becomes a focus on law. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's not good. And that's a major critique, a major issue we have. Um, when we go before the civil magistrate um, and say, you're doing unrighteous things, is that, do we leave it there? Do we say, you're doing unrighteous things, you need to stop so that um, God will um, not judge you? Or do we then present the gospel to that person? We need to present the gospel to anybody. It doesn't matter uh, who they are, whether it's a civil magistrate or not. And it's that gospel, not always, not always, I don't want to say always, but it seems to me that a lot of time that gospel message gets lost. And that is the core. That is the core reason why we need, uh, the core thing that we need to be bringing out. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Sean. There is an overemphasis on the here and now as Mm -hmm. opposed to the gospel. The gospel is not enough to change the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do believe, and I'll say this again, we as true Christians believe the law of God applies for today. We believe it does. It's how it applies that's the issue. Are mm-hmm. we taking all of the judicial um, laws of the Old Testament and applying them for today, or are we taking the general equity of them? You know, the, that's really the, the substance here. And where do we break up God's law? How is the scriptures lay out uh, how God's law is to be applied in different ways? So the church versus the state. Those are, that's the real discussion that has to be had here. And unfortunately, it, um, our, at least um, from the Apologia side, it seems that um, our Theonomous brothers don't make that distinction. And it's just you either agree with me or you hate God's law. That, that seems to be the, the fundamental issue. But the gospel is not uh, talked about as much as it should be. The gospel is what changes the heart. The gospel mm-hmm. is what brings salvation. That's the power of God to salvation. It's not a power of God to salvation. It's the power of God to salvation. It's what Paul says mm-hmm. in Romans 1. So that has to be front and center when we're engaging um, the nations and we're engaging the culture. The gospel has to be the center. Yes, God's law uh, in a moral and general equitable sense applies to the state. No one is to, uh, no true Christian denies that. Um, but we have to make sure that the gospel, which changes the heart and causes people to truly submit to God's law, is front and center. Um, and, and that's where I think our part of our disagreement is. Mm-hmm. And then um, Dr. White also brought up the fact that um, currently in the current culture of the West, you have things such as um, a father in Canada who's, was he in jail or he's at least not allowed to call his um uh, his son by um, his proper name and proper pronouns. Um, and that's true with the way the culture currently is a lot of evil is permitted, but having a, a Christian or Christianized culture doesn't prevent persecution. Um, no. Uh, did uh, medieval Europe, you could at least say had a much more um, uh, uh, judicial law that was much more based on um the Bible than uh, current uh, Western culture is. But did that prevent people like Fritz Erba from being thrown in a hole for eight years? For those who don't know, uh, Fritz Erba is a, uh, was a uh, Anabaptist minister that because he would refuse to give up his views on baptism was thrown in a castle hole for eight years until he died. Um, I bring this up because uh, Dr. White likes to use him as an example. Uh, but ultimately it, it didn't help him. It didn't help say Felix Mons, another Anabaptist who is martyred for being a Baptist or Credo Baptist, at least. Um, uh, take, uh, then move on to Puritan New England, right? If there were any place to be a reflection of uh, the, uh, the civil law of God applied to a culture, you could, uh, 
probably say, well, Puritan New England would be a good place to look. And yet you have people like Roger Williams, again, another Baptist, driven out from there. Um, just because you have a civil law, it won't protect you against persecution. Because ultimately, as the, the uh, person who did the tweet alluded to, that doesn't change people's hearts. The law was never meant to change people's heart. It was never meant to make people righteous. Um, certainly, um, it can prevent unrighteous things from happening, but that's not going to, you're not going to be able to avoid it by putting the civil law or, or trying to make the, um, uh, the current laws that we have in our nation um, reflect the laws given to the nation of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. Yep. Yeah, and you even see this with the particular Baptists. Um, you know, they they refused to capitulate to the Church of England. Um, some of them were put to death. Some of them were thrown in prison. Uh, they were spied upon. There was persecution there, even, and that was really a, a theocracy to some extent. You had a church-state mixture. You had the church. It, you had the state enforcing religious practices, um, but it did not prevent the persecution of God's people. And Jesus makes it very clear that it's going to be normative for um, the Christian church to be persecuted. They're going to hate you. They're going to speak out against you. These things we see in Canada um, with these brothers who are being um, arrested, put in prison because they refuse to stop religious worship due to the COVID regulations. Um, that That is a form of persecution uh, because they are wanting to continue to worship God in the way is prescribed and not let the state overstep those bounds. Um, and so there is persecuted. It's not going to be taken away just because we institute God's law in the land. Um, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be aspects of God's law instituted in the land, as we've said already, uh, but it's not going to solve the problem. We're not going to be able to squash all these problems that we have in society just by simply changing the government that we live um, around. It's just not going to happen. We are to continue to live as peaceable Christians, submitting um, in as much as it's consistent with God's commandments to the government, living peaceable and quiet lives, and telling others the gospel as God gives us uh, opportunity to. That is our job, um, and we can certainly influence uh, the government. We can call for the end of abortion because they are to be um, upholding order and, and punishing those who are evil. Um, but we're also uh, not to become consumed with changing our government to the point where we miss where is our real calling? Is it here? Are we establishing a kingdom on this earth or are we establish or are we looking forward to a coming kingdom in Jesus Christ? That is really where we have to we have to push and our and unfortunately our theonomic brothers seem to miss that. And you have to understand that theonomy and reconstructionism is ultimately tied to an eschatological worldview. Um, it is you. I don't know how you can be a theonomist and not be a postmillennialist because they don't. They're not consistent with one another. Uh, you have to really, if you're going to be consistent, you have to hold to both because they go hand in hand. Um, although there might be post uh, theonomists who aren't postmillennialists and, and vice versa. So, um, but yeah, so we have to be we have to be careful to make these proper distinctions um, when we're talking about God's law and how. Christians are to relate to the state. I, I would I would push back a little on that. I can understand how somebody could be post-millennial without being theonomic. Uh, it's just a different type of post-millennialism. Um, mm. not, not because all we see uh, in the modern day is a lot of the uh, um, uh, theonomic post-mill. So that version, I completely understand why it's consistent, but more the pietistic um, post-mills would not necessarily have to be theonomic. theonomic. 
Although I will agree that to be a theonomist, it almost requires post-millennialism. Mm, okay. Because otherwise, what are, what are you... Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that general light of nature thing ain't working too good. Because here's the problem. That nature needs to be understood in light of God's revelation as to who man is. We now live in a society that has secularized to the point where you have a majority of people who view us as ugly bags of mostly water, as stardust. And those people, again, are suppressing the truth that they already know through God's law written on their hearts. As fizzing chemicals, whatever other terminology you want to use. By the way, I preached a sermon Sunday night and it was a tough sermon. It wasn't a fun sermon. It's not a happy, clappy sermon. It's not a, I feel so much better about myself sermon. I don't think anybody felt very good about themselves ever that, that, that sermon. But I would direct you to it if you have been thinking about what foundational work you can be doing to try to be prepared to deal with horrible persecution in the future especially persecution where you would be separated from other believers and from everybody because they're doing that to believers in, in in china isolating them that's what that's what communists do that's what we did in the stasi prisons they're doing it in china and if you can't see that there are many people in our society and in our government today that would say it's best for the public health that we help these people by re-educating them. Then you're missing it because that's Pause. what they're going to do. So at this point, just I, I would want to ask, okay, so what's, what's the solution to that? Because the right. solution in my mind is preach the gospel that they would, they would turn from their sin and be saved. It's not, well, we need to institute a culture based on God's law. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not the answer, right? Yeah, it, it's certainly um, to some extent part of it, but not going to solve the problem. That shouldn't be the first yeah. thing we think of when we are thinking about persecution, right? Yeah, it shouldn't be the first response. First response should be we should seek mm -hmm. to teach them the gospel. And even mm -hmm. you know, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff came from. Um, the Constantine era, right? Before this, and Mark Knoll in his book, Turning Points, it's a book on church history and different events in church history. He talks about this, that before, like for the first three centuries of the church, there was this pilgrimage mindset, right? We were, we're living in this world, we're not of this world, and we're looking forward to what's to come. It was after Constantine mixed church and state that you started to have this mindset that the church and state must go together, that uh, there's this emphasis on the here and now with regards to government and, and law and, and how the church's relation to the state is to really play in. Before that, the, the church was just living, uh, at least generally speaking, they were living uh, with a pilgrimage mindset. We're looking forward to what's coming. We're not of this world. We live as Christians quiet in this world. Um, so I think that's important to point out as well. Anyway, uh, I, I dealt with that um, Sunday night and Apology at Church, so you can find that on their YouTube channel while it's still there. Um, 
and I gave five foundations of things to work on. Things that we, that five things you can focus upon in the darkness, in your solitude, if you are isolated as a believer, um, to attempt to stay strong uh, when someone's attempting to break your faith. And it's something I've thought about. And every time I talk to my fellow pastors and stuff, they've thought about it too. And so I addressed it. Sometimes I address stuff that isn't a whole lot of fun to address, but there you go. Okay, anyway, so as people are recognizing that the church's ceasefire with culture has not worked, we need to have a word from God. I would like to know what he means by church's ceasefire with culture. Um, I, I don't, I, if he's talking about it in the sense of his, in light of his theonomic worldview, I think that's a, not a very good argument because mm -hmm. if a church is preaching the gospel and we're engaging the culture in that sense, then you're obviously not ceasing fire with culture. Um, we're seeking real ultimate change with culture through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I would like more clarification what he means by that, but I, I think he's probably going with, uh, you know, not engaging the worldview that the scripture gives with the culture um, and not necessarily just the gospel. Mm -hmm. To a society that has completely lost its collective mind and certainly its way. And so the question of theonomy is, unfortunately, has been inappropriately um, framed 30 years ago. Um, man, I wish I had this. I need to make a note to myself somehow. Um I need to track down Bonson's response to Westminster's book because I've never seen, I've never seen Bonson spit flame like he did in this. And basically what he said was given what's happening in our society, given what's happening in regards to homosexuality and issues like that, isn't it astonishing that when Westminster Theological Seminary can finally get all its professors together to write a book, to take a stand on one issue, it's not about homosexuality and it's not about marriage and it's not about any of the other things. It's against God's law. That's the one thing they can all get together and say, that's a bad thing. Now, I have a problem with this. Um, yeah. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so, as mentioned before, the real issue of the, of this discussion is not whether or not someone who criticizes as a theonomy or a particular view of theonomy means that they believe God's law is a bad thing. The brothers at Westminster, I highly doubt when they wrote, the, and I think I, I think I know what book he's talking about. I think he's talking about uh, the book Theonomy, a Reform Critique, which came out in 1990, which was a critique um, of Bonson. Uh, and I think maybe Gary North, but I could be wrong, but I think it was at least Bonson. But it was a critique of theonomy uh, as this issue of Reconstructionism was uh, swirling in the church at the time. And Westminster thought it, it would be a good idea to do some writing on it, critique the position. But to to say that these brothers had a view of God's law, they thought it was a bad thing, I think is probably not true. I mean, this is, Westminster Theological Seminary is a reformed, confessional, conservative Christian seminary uh, who 
I obviously believes God's law applies for today. I don't think that they would say that God's law itself was bad. And this is the distinction that I think our theonomic brothers, at least Dr. White here, failed to make, is it's not about whether or not God's law is bad. It's about the application of God's law. How is God's law applied to today? And so I think an argument like this misses the point of the entire discussion. God's law is absolutely applicable for today. And every true Christian who is a Christian believes that we must obey God and submit to his law. If you don't, you aren't a Christian. Uh, John makes this very clear in 1 John, 1 John 2, 3, by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, right? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Keeping the commandments of God, keeping God's law is absolutely crucial for the Christian, but it's how it's applied from the judicial uh, sense, primarily, yeah, that's really the, where the sticking point is. How is that to be applied for today? And this is where you have to get covenant theology into the discussion. This is where you have to understand the tables of the law, right? Or the, uh, as we would hold the three tables of the law, the moral, the judicial, the ceremonial. What, how does that all apply the, for today? You mean the threefold division of the law? Yeah, the threefold division yeah. of the law. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the threefold division of the law. So that discussion is key to understanding this. And I think that our brothers who are theonomists tend to broad brush the issue. It tends to be God's law in general, and then it's not very clear on what they mean by that. Um, you know, Dr. White, I, I know he doesn't believe the ceremonial applies for today. Otherwise, he would uh, be a heretic if he believes that the ceremonial applies for today in the sense that it did back then. Um, but is still when you're talking about these other aspects of the law, it's not very clear in what it's meant. And we see this historically with theonomists as well. Rush Dooney, who is the father of theonomy and reconstructionism, uh, was like this uh, as well. Um, he is in his introduction on uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law, which I have right here. Um, he's not very clear on what God's law is. He just talks about God's law versus antinomianism but there's not really a distinction made between the ceremonial, the moral, or the judicial. It's just God's law in general. And I think that's a problem, because even if you say somewhere else that the, the ceremonial doesn't apply for today, but then you just, in your primary writings on the subject, you talk about God's law, God's law, God's law, without making those proper distinctions, I think it creates confusion and can lead to um, uh, people misunderstanding you, or it could... Uh, lead to other implications that are that are not good. Bonson was known for this, uh, for not being consistent on this. For instance, he talks about, um, I think it was a, either a lecture he gave or a radio show he was on or something like that. It's called The Law to Criticize or Obey. He says, so basically what I'm suggesting, it's a thesis of my book, and I think it's the way the Bible would have us break down the commandments of the Old Testament. I'm suggesting that we have moral and ceremonial law moral and restorative law, and that all laws of God are binding today. The substance of every law given in the Old Testament is binding today. This is what Jesus teaches in Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus says every jot and tittle, and he doesn't allow us to draw lines and seams and divide God's law up into what we'll accept and what we won't. I do not believe the restorative law has been aggregated. So when you read that on its face, it seems like that Bonson is saying all of God's law, including the ceremonial, applies for today. He's very explicit about that. Um, but then in other places, he'll make distinctions in God's law um, that doesn't seem to be this all-exhaustive, all-inclusive language that he was using elsewhere. 
So even among Bonson, there's this lack of clarity and quite frankly, inconsistency in his view of God's law. So this seems to be a, a general theme from our uh, Theonomous brothers. There's just this lack of clarity with what God's law is and this broad brushing of God's law without making the, the clear distinctions that need to be made. One, so you're clear on what you believe and two, so others don't go down the road that they shouldn't with regards to God's law. And those distinctions have to be made within um, the law of God. Yeah, I guarantee you that uh, of all the people that were teaching at Westminster Seminary at the time, if somebody had gone to them and said, hey, we as Christians need to make sure that the culture is circumcising its children, or we <laughs> as Christians need to make sure that there's a temple yep. system in Jerusalem that's offering Levitical sacrifices. Um, and obviously every single one of them would have condemned that immediately as is inappropriate and uh, at worst legalistic. And um, not a single theonomist would go to them and say, well, don't you love God's law? Because ultimately, it's not about whether or not love it. It's not about loving God's law or not. It's about how is it applied. And we know that God's law or that aspect of it, what we call the ceremonial law, um, was for specific people and a specific time. So when we talk about the judicial laws, we view that in a similar way, that that was also for specific people for a specific time. And thus, it is not binding in the same way today that it was back then and um there's uh i don't know it's just it seems that theonomists seem to treat it in the same category as moral law whereas we would treat it more in the category of ceremonial law something that's a positive law aka it's not universal it's for a specific covenant uh in this case the mosaic covenant and once that covenant is done away with that doesn't apply to us, at least in the same way, because ultimately we would say that uh, the way the New Testament treats judicial law, it does apply within the context of the church. But um, we, and we may get into that discussion a little later, but uh, it's, it truly is just a matter of how does this law apply today? It's not about, oh, you don't like God's law. Yeah, I, I think that's really a, probably a red herring argument. It distracts from the real issue. Right. Yeah. It's not really dealing with the problem. It's it's more going around the problem and trying to put up some other argument to try and deal with something that really isn't the issue. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a distinction made between moral law and positive law in the scriptures. We don't equate mm -hmm. uh, the ceremonial law with the moral law or we would have to obey the ceremonial law. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't equate circumcision with moral law or we would have to obey. Uh, we would have to continuously uh, in a moral sense, be circumcised, but we don't have that. Um, and actually, um, Dr. James Renahan talks about this distinction. He did a lecture uh, at, a, I think it was a founders conference on the law of God in the 1689. Uh, and he used 1 Corinthians 7 to prove his point of this distinction between moral and positive. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 19. Um, he's, uh, it says, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this way, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So the context here is talking about marriage, whether to you know, pursue marriage or remain in singleness. And he uses uh, the 
principle of circumcision to prove his point. But he makes a distinction here. In verse 19, he, he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So he makes a clear distinction between the commandments of God, which would clearly be the moral law, and circumcision, which was commanded of God, but is no longer um, binding upon the people of God. It's positive law. It's extra law that's in addition to the moral law. So even Paul was making this distinction in other discussions. So that if we keep that proper distinction, the failures that our Theonomous brothers make um, are much harder to fall into. And if we are consistent with it, you won't fall into it because you'll understand that there is a distinction and category between the two and to conflate them um, is to lead to all sorts of problems. And these brothers will make those distinctions to some extent in positive law, like for the ceremonial. James White will, will say, absolutely, the ceremonial does not apply for today. And that's positive law. That's not part of the moral law. But when it comes to judicial law, it becomes a little bit more difficult to make that distinction. And those tend to be equated with the moral law mm -hmm. um, or they're emphasized to an extent that they really shouldn't be. And for if you were to ask any reformed person, where's the moral law summed up? They, they, they immediately know the, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, right. right. Ten Commandments yep. is the summation of the moral law. Now, yep. while the Ten Commandments does lay out um, some of the law that we would see in the judicial law in the sense of what's to be punished. It doesn't lay out the punishments. It says adultery is wrong. It doesn't prescribe what the government is to do in regards to adultery. Right. So there's a, there's a distinction there. And so the judicial punishment is not necessarily part of the moral law itself. Ultimately, we do know that while... Uh, adultery is worthy to be punished if it doesn't happen in this life if a government doesn't fails to punish adultery at least by execution um is is the people uh are the people um responsible for not uh carrying out that punishment are they going to be on the day of judgment held accountable to that i would say no it wasn't part of the moral law it wasn't part of the law written on their hearts and we um they weren't given in the moral law a specific punishment for adultery mm -hmm. um, they won't be held accountable at least for that aspect yeah we are to be held we are to be held accountable for the moral law today and um the judicial law will is a guidance for us but it is not necessarily binding right positive law was really just a specific way in which the moral law was applied mm -hmm. that i think is is very important to keep in mind it is not the moral law itself the law of the parapet is not uh, the the law thou shalt not murder. It's an application of that law to a specific place and time, um, which is where we get the concept of general equity from. Um, but we can maybe have that discussion a little bit. And I've admitted I was influenced by that book. I graduated in seminary right at that time. And so I heard all this stuff and I imbibed all that stuff. Now we're living in a day where we literally are in a culture that wants to make it evil to use words like father, mother, husband, wife, child, family, male, female. All the common grace stuff is gone. Okay? That ain't working. All the natural law stuff, you have to have a mind that recognizes there can be a source of coherence to have natural law. 
we're past that. That source of coherence, again, is already there. It's written on the hearts of men, that men suppress it. Men know that they should not be engaging in homosexual behavior, but they do it anyways because they twist the created order of the creature. They have that coherence. They don't have every, maybe every um, metaphysical implication worked out about it, but they have the basics. God's law is written on their heart. They know what they should and mm -hmm. should not do. That influences their actions, and they are held accountable for that. Mm -hmm. and, and this seems to be a common theme that he harps upon in this video, mm -hmm. but the pushing away from natural law and focusing more on this prophetic word for the culture yeah. that we need. And because he's distinguishing himself from non-theonomists here, right? Um, does like I, I can't imagine he would say that non-theonomists don't preach against hard against homosexuality or right. adultery or abortion or whatever whatever the evil of the culture is. We do. Uh, not not everyone, obviously. There are people that let these things slide, and uh, right. they shouldn't. But um, I, I come against hard against those things because they are evil. I have no yes. problem saying that. But what I, I coming against those things, hopefully, immediately after that, what I'm going to do is give a gospel presentation because it's not enough to right. just leave them with the law and expect them to like, okay, well, there's the law. Go fix yourself. Right. Um, it, yep. it needs to be followed by a gospel presentation. Amen. And, Amen. and that is the only way they'll be changed. If their heart is changed, they will, if, if you are in Christ, you're going to try and keep the law. Not perfectly. Mm. You're not going to be able to do it perfectly, but you will try to keep the law. And that, that's the only means, the only prescribed means um, that God has uh, used to, in order to better, I guess, a nation, if you want to say it like that. Um, yes. Yeah, God, hasn't so. God hasn't told us to institute the judicial law around in order to make our nations better. I don't, I don't see that command anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't see any old Testament example of the Jews to were to go forth into the pagan nations and bring the law with them. The law, their law was to show the Gentiles the goodness of their God. It's true. Absolutely. But, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and I think it goes back to having a solid covenant theology, which Dr. White has made very clear in the past. It is not um, an overly important topic for him to invest his time in is, is a solid covenant theology. Back in October, a dividing line highlights posted a clip where he critiqued 1689 federalism. And he made it very clear in that clip that he did not. And this was from a dividing line episode. He made it very clear that covenant theology was not, um, something that was overly important to him. And I think that shows. And um, it, Rush Dooney and I think Bonson, they, Rush Dooney especially, they had a high view of covenant theology. And Rush Dooney tied his co his covenant theology to his view of God's law. Um, and I think that is very important because I, they saw the connection there between God's law. And Rush Dooney even called God's law a covenant, uh, really with man that God has made. And so there's, uh, there's this understanding that covenant language is necessary to this discussion. Don't really see that here with, uh, with Dr. White. Uh, he may very well take a covenant theology, but that doesn't seem to be front and center when he's talking about God's law. But underneath all of that, there is assumptions about God's law, which is tied specifically to the old covenant that you have to make in order to hold to a theonomic worldview, whether or not you overtly talk about covenant theology, you are uh, talking about covenant theology to some extent, but that's important 
in not falling into some of these pitfalls um, or to the pitfall of theotomy in general uh, is having a solid covenant theology. We've got to have a foundation to stand on. Autonomy hasn't worked. Theonomy does not mean that you take your three-year-old to church and stone them in the front yard if they've been naughty that week. Okay, if, if that's what you think it's about. Now, by the way, if what God's law said about that you think is bad, you got a problem. Because you got a problem with the same law that Jesus said was holy and just and good. So did Paul. So he says that theonomy does not mean you take your child and stone them in the, the front yard at church. Well, in, we would say, well, in principle, yes, it, it does. If God's law required that, wouldn't you have to do it if you love God's law? Or is that simply autonomy? The old law did make sanctions for stoning your children if they were disobedient. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. So yes, if in principle, well, in principle, this absolutely is theotomy. If you believe that God's law applies today. Now, Dr. White might be making distinctions here in God's law. And if so, then he's doing what we're doing as those who speak out against theonomy. And apparently it's okay for him to do if that's what he's doing, but it's not okay for us to do. We just hate God's law. So there seems to be this, um, I want to have my cake and eat it too mindset. Um, if you're going to use this, you either speak out against God's law, therefore you hate God's law, or you speak out against theonomy, therefore you hate God's law. Um, without making those proper category distinctions, I can turn that right around and, and use that same argument when you make distinctions within God's law. Um, but in principle, yeah, this is, if if that's what God's law required, we this is yeah. the authority that God gave, you have to do it Yeah, <laughs> according to your standard. Yeah. No, and I will, I will come out and say it. That was good for that time because- yes. God Absolutely. is the one who has the right of life. He has the right to give life, and he has the right to take away life. Nobody can demand life of themselves. Yes. Um, and especially when you put on top of that that we're all sinners, then none of us deserve life even more. Um, mm. So if God gives the command to someone, especially in this case who's in blatant sin, you are to take that person's life away from them. That is perfectly fine. That is morally correct. I have absolutely no issues with it. Um the only issue is, does that law apply today, at mm. least in the same way? And mm. the answer is, well, no, it doesn't. It was no. it was in a in a mosaic covenant context, and I see mm -hmm. no evidence that that um, should be binding on the believer today, at least in its uh, fullness. Let alone the pagan nations of today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it seems that there is this. Yeah, again, this is where positive mm -hmm. law and the, that distinction between positive moral law come in. This would be positive mm -hmm. law that was a penal law applied mm -hmm. specifically to that people in that time. And that's what our confession talks about as well. You know, there were judicial laws that applied. And then once mm -hmm. that people group disappeared and went away, they crossed off the scene, they passed off the scene, they're no longer applicable. 
-hmm. no longer applicable. But the moral law is abiding perpetually. Mm -hmm. The distinction is so cool. So and a lot, and a lot of times you'll have people say that, well, if you're not applying the judicial law today, if you're not trying to get that applied, how will you have a just society, or where where is your your justice essentially? And um, mm. as Dr. White is fond of bringing up, um, sometimes in this life we're not going to get justice. It's just not going to happen, right. and we shouldn't be concerned about making every single little thing just in this life because ultimately there will be a day of judgment where every wrong will be dealt with appropriately, justly. Um, yep. So if we live in a culture that is evil and wicked and does unjust things, that's, I mean, it doesn't, it's not good to be in here. I'm in 100% agreement with Dr. White. It's not going to be fun to go through it. No. But that doesn't mean that we're going to use means that God has not prescribed in order yes. to make it better. Amen. The means, the means God is what God has told to his church to do is to go out and preach the gospel. Yes. As we preach the gospel and make disciples, they will obey the law and that will make the culture better. Absolutely. 100%. Yes. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to therefore uh, try to institute the mosaic civil law on the culture and then expect that to make the culture better. It, uh, the, it, the law has doesn't have the power to make anyone keep it. So even literally, even if every single person or if the nation had every single one of the Mosaic civil laws today, right now on its books, it would not change anybody's heart. It wouldn't make it, it wouldn't make them act better necessarily. Amen. Yep. The gospel is the means of true change. And the state does have a role. We don't deny that. Romans 13 is very clear. There is order in mm -hmm. society that has to be laid out. Romans 13 is very clear about that, but mm -hmm. that is the state's job. And mm -hmm. the church is to preach the gospel. The state mm -hmm. is to enforce the moral law of God and the general equity mm -hmm. of his uh, judicial laws. And no one would, no one would say that, um, say you're a parent and uh, you institute a curfew for your 14 year old son or wh whatever. Um, nobody would say, well, that's not prescribed in the law of God explicitly. So you're clearly acting in an autonomous way. Um, and it's either theonomy or autonomy. So go back to the Bible to learn how you should interact with your son. No, right. obviously God has given a certain level of authority to you as a parent. And you're using that authority within the bounds of scripture to institute a curfew for your child. Um, mm. Just because it's not explicitly laid down doesn't mean that you don't have a right to do that. That's, it's neither autonomy nor theonomy in that regard it's um or i guess you could say it's both in a sense but regardless um just because it's not explicitly laid down there are principles that you use to guide to you know how you uh as a guide for how you interact with your children um the government should i understand that it doesn't but should uh be using the moral law to guide its decisions i wish mm -hmm. every single person in the united states senate the united states congress wherever uh, every time they were about to make a law, open up their Bible, looked at it, and tried to think, okay, what does God have to say about this law that we're about to make? I wish it was. I wish they did that, but um, ultimately, they don't do that. And our response to that, again, should be preaching the gospel. But mm. um, it doesn't mean that they are currently engaged in sin because they haven't instituted in a actual or a general equity way um the mosaic civil law yep 
That's exactly right, brother. And I'm gonna I'm gonna address some. There's a lot of good discussion happening in the comments here. Um, David Roosh uh, said, "I think discussions of theonomy need to involve conversations of the abuses back to everything." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think this would, um, I think this would help to highlight some of the dangers of enforcing uh, an unhealthy view of God's uh, law through state. Um, and, and he talks also about covenant. The Emirate calls saw the connection between covenant theology and the civil government. Infant baptism made you a citizen of the state uh, of the state and the church. That's right. There is there was a connection there. Again, the their view of covenant theology saw especially the baptism, this was your entrance into the covenant community, and that was tied directly to the state. You weren't baptized. You weren't part of that covenant community. You weren't part of the state. Bad things were going to happen to you. You probably would not do well in society. So, yeah, they were tied directly together. Uh, classical Christian literature said, random thought, isn't it odd that a theonomist would also advocate for presuppositional apologetics? Either natural revelation is sufficient to make men guilty, or it's not. Can't have it both ways. That's a great point. And I think that goes to the heart of what we're talking about here with Dr. White. He seems to be moving away from the natural theology or natural revelation as being um, sufficient to holding men accountable on its own. Uh, and it needs to be some other prophetic word, uh, probably talk about scripture here. But that is um, that is a great point because Van Til did talk about uh, the revelation that God has given through his uh, through his creation. Um, let's see, a, a squirrel. Okay. Uh, the work of the law is written on their hearts conviction. It brings to the conscience, their thoughts. Excuse me. Yep. That's Romans chapter two. And that's what we were, uh, talking about uh, earlier. So I'm not a theonomist, but I think discussions of theonomy need to involve actual conversations with theonomists, a variety of them, since there are several types, not about them. It feels just like listening to Pato Baptist talk about Creator Baptist. And I mean, obviously we disagree with that. Um, I think you can, do I have to know N.T. Wright to criticize his view of the new perspective on Paul? No, I, I don't think that's a very good argument, uh, brother, but thank you for your comment. Mm. What are we going to say, well, Sean? I was going to say, I don't necessarily mind having a theonomist on. Um, yeah. Obviously, we, we just we saw this clip and decided to re respond to it, um, but that's not to say we don't mind having a discussion with a theonomist. It no. Just, it just so happened that we saw this and felt the need to respond to it. It doesn't mean I'm sure if we emailed Dr. White and to have him on, he would be like, who are these guys? You know, yeah. Actually, has he, he he's interacted with you on Twitter before, right, Dan? As he has interacted with our page. Okay. Yeah. All right. But he, he, he might be vaguely aware of who we are. But um, like just because we see somebody doesn't necessarily mean we're going to re uh, reach out to him and be like, you have to be on our show to have a discussion. Right. Right. <laughs> All right. Moving along. Okay. But if you think that that's what anyone who calls himself a theonomist today is saying, then you've missed it. You haven't been doing, you've only been reading one side and mainly only on the internet. I'm not talking about. So Christmas. while, while we would have a question of consistency there, it's not saying that you do believe it. I, I, I 100% understand that you're not going to stone your children um, if they misbehave. Right. But yes. my question is why? And unfortunately, at least in this discussion, um, he doesn't get into it. And I've, I've listened to, um, not that this makes me an expert, obviously, but I've listened to a lot of Apologia over the years, and I'm not sure what their reason for not doing it either would be. Um, mm. Apologia being another, um, it's a church, but they, they're also big promoters of theonomy. 
And what's funny is they push Bonson quite a bit. Um, and if you're saying you don't represent Bonson's view of theonomy, uh, what does that say? You know, you promote Bonson way over here, but and seem to take his at least to some extent his view on theonomy. But then over here, you're you're just mm -hmm. like, well, you know, that's not what we believe today. Does that mm -hmm. mean you disagree with what he believed back then on theonomy? So yeah. my recollection is, and I might I might be wrong about this, but because basically uh, modern theonomists are more general equity theonomists in the sense of, well, you don't actually have to stone someone, but we do need the capital punishment. It's the general equity of the law in that sense. So while they wouldn't say, oh, necessarily you have to stone, you do have to, um, uh, like, it's a capital punishment by some other means. My recollection is that either Rush Dooney or Bonson was against general equity, that they actually wanted, like, if it was said stoning, you have to stone. So he would be in disagreement with Dr. White there, but I might not be right on that. So perhaps I should so, have said anything at that point. No, no, no. I think you're right with Rush Dooney. I think you're right. Um, to some extent, I think he believed in a one-to-one -one mm -hmm. application of God's law. And I, actually I had a, in his Institutes of Biblical Law, um, I had a part marked out. I'll read it real quick. Um, page 59, or I'm sorry, 56 of the Institutes of Biblical Law. So to understand the full implication of the tithe, he's talking about the tithe, it is important to know that biblical law has no property tax. The right to tax real property is implicitly denied to the state because the state has no earth to tax. This earth is the Lord's, Exodus 9.29, Deuteronomy 10.14, Psalm 24.1, 1 Corinthians 10.26, etc. Therefore, only God can tax the earth. So there seems to be a one-to-one -one application here between the lack of property tax in the Old Testament law and that applying absolutely to today's governments. So to your point, Sean, I think it, to some extent, he did hold to that. I love Chris. I'm just pushing back to Chris to go, hey, think about this, bro, because I was once there. I get it. I'm not there anymore. And here's why. What must be the source of our law? What must be the source? If it is to be derived from the demos, the people, can you not see what that results in? We're seeing it right now. Everyone's starting to see there are now two laws in our land. There are now two laws in our land. If you're on the left, you get one set of laws. And if you're not, you get another set of laws. And the result is anarchy. It can't, that can't work. So do you want law that derives from God's revelation or do you want law that is derived from rebellion against God? That's really the only two choices you have. Because anything that has ever been good in anything system that man has, has derived has come from God's law. Due process, where does that come from? Scripture. Innocent until proven guilty, where does that come from? Scripture. Necessity of witnesses, cross-examination, Bible, 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 English common law, blah, 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 blah. You throw that out, what do you get? You get the Soviet Union. You get communist China. There's, there's not much in between. Well, in fact, there's nothing in between. So when it says it didn't work in Geneva, what do you mean by that? Because what you have in Geneva was the continuing 
medieval synthesis that created sacralism. And sacralism, I understand how someone would go, you want sacralism. No, I don't want sacralism. I want to speak the truth as to what God's law says, because that's how mankind knows what man is. I can't testify that every male is actually a male, is called by God to be a male and to man up, if I don't have a foundation for saying that. And you might say, well, natural science can do that. Natural science as interpreted in what world? Natural science in a world where natural science has laws that makes it consistent, sure. But now you're borrowing from my worldview again. Uh, pause there for a second. Um, yep. So I don't think that fundamental... I mean, he's absolutely 100% right. Natural law as interpreted by who, by what worldview, right? Yep. Because we live in a yep. worldview or a culture that its worldview rejects the, the obvious. But I don't understand how the proclamator... I don't understand how God's law would get around that in the sense of if you have men that don't want to interpret God's law the way it's supposed to be interpreted, how they're not also going to twist that to their own devices. You know what I mean? So the issue is not, are we specific enough in our law or is the law clear enough in front of them? So this time they'll, they'll say it and this time they'll, they'll right. behave differently. Um, it's, it's not at, at the end of the day, unregenerate man will do what he wants. Um, right. Yeah. And while fully knowing what he's not supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. And if unregenerate man is in power, they're going to twist even God's word to do whatever it is they want to do to keep, to be able to continue in their sin. Um, so us having a culture that in theory looks to the Bible for its laws doesn't necessarily mean anything what we need is to have the gospel proclaimed so that people are saved and then after they're saved they will look to god's law as to how they organize their lives lives and cultural benefit because of that right yep that's exactly right you can see how quote unquote natural science is being used by everybody to, to substantiate everything now because there's no consistency in the worldview that people are embracing. So sacralism involved a incestuous uh, connection between church and state where the two sort of like violated the hypostatic union. <laughs> okay. So when you, when you get a, when you get the intermixture like in Eutychianism or, you know, you know, um, Nestorianism, uh, Apollinarianism, Eutychianism. When you're talking about Christology, you get that unnatural intermixture, which ends up destroying sphere sovereignty. The church has its sphere. The state has its sphere. But they're both subspheres underneath God. So... This, I think, is a problem for his worldview if he's coming at it simply from the, well, it's either you abide by my worldview or you don't like God's law instead of making the proper distinctions. Because the law of God did require uh, that a king submit to the old covenant. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of reading from Second Kings. This is absolutely explicitly clear here. Second, uh, Second Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Therefore, improve yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. I'm emphasizing that that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons shall uh, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul. He said, you shall not lack a man on the throne in Israel. So the church and state under the old covenant were absolutely mixed together. And it was a command of God. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that was just optional that the, okay, the state could do its own thing over here and just govern the people. And then the priests could do their thing over here and perform the ceremonial aspects of the law. No, they were absolutely intermingled. The king had to make sure that everything within the law of Moses was done. Um, and I, so I find this a problem if he's trying to make this church state distinction and I appreciate mm -hmm. that he's making it because we would absolutely agree. There is a, a church sphere and a state sphere. Um, but from your own position, if you're just going to say it's either God's law or autonomy and God's law requires this, then you have to go with this or you have to start making distinctions and you can't use that argument of its autonomy or theonomy when we make distinctions within God's law in critiquing your view of God's law. So I think it's important that we have these things clear. This was absolutely uh, crucial. And Solomon, even later on in Second Kings, would build up the temple of God. He rebuilt the temple, and God blessed him for that. And, and God even reminded him of his role as king um, right after he built the temple. Second Kings. Second uh, Kings 6, uh, starting in verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So God is basically reemphasizing what David told him to do as he was dying. Hey, remember, remember your role as king. You're to submit to the law of God. And you're to also enforce the Mosaic law, all the ceremonial aspects, the statutes. This is all inclusive language is to be applied to the people of Israel. And he was held accountable for whether it was um, uh, whether it was applied or not to the people of Israel. You have anything you want to add, Sean? I did, but I've forgotten what it was, so just move on. <laughs> okay, I was, no worries. I was thinking and thinking, and then I'm like, oh, wait, what was I going to say? No. <laughs> happens to the best of us oops and the church says to the state here's what god says but the church doesn't take over the role of the state in the process and that oh, was always the issue yeah that's okay yeah. yeah so that's that's so our, look at the form of the argument he was using there like if you think this is what theonomy is about you're wrong and then goes to explain why it's bad that the the church and state would be mixed. That's not what we're after there, right? Where we're, we understand that it's wrong for the church and state to mix. Yep. We want to know why from your position, from your assumptions, that that isn't a thing. Right. And he didn't, he didn't prove why that's inconsistent with theonomy to have church and state mixture. All he did was demonstrate that, well, you shouldn't do that. It's like, yeah, we, right. we agree. Why, from your position, is it 
not what does it not naturally follow and i didn't get that from that explanation right um, willing willing to be perfectly corrected on that but at least from that explanation i did not did not um yeah because if you're if you're not starting from what the real issue is it's an application of god's law it's not whether or not i hate god's law or not if you're if you're not starting from that correct position it i think creates this tension in your view great that you're making the distinctions but it doesn't seem to flow from your fundamental argument and I, that's what we're trying to point out here um absolutely agree with him there's a church sphere there's a state sphere they are not to be mixed agrees historically not only is it not biblical but historically it's been devastating yeah. um it never bodes well because it's not god's intention in from the point in time where you have the, the highest reach of the papacy, where you've got the Holy Roman Emperor kneeling in the snow outside the Pope's door to try to get his position back, to the reverse of that, where the Emperor completely controls the Pope, to the point where you have Leo, at the time of Luther, who's riding through Rome in armor, leading an army, okay? That's where you've gotten this intermixture. And that's not what we're talking about. See, so the presentation, I think the problem with theonomy is that you have unregenerate men attempting to apply and submit others to God's law. The question is, what law is going to actually correspond to the need of any man, whether unregenerate or regenerate? And the regenerate or unregenerate state of the person enforcing the law cannot be the determining factor the state uh pause there is, are we going to see it's not a matter of it being the determining factor of what law should be there it's a the determining factor in whether or not that law will actually do what you're you're hoping it will do because you're hoping that um the decadence of the West essentially can be turned around. And I'm not, I don't believe that's the case that even if we had righteous laws on, on the books, I'm not sure that it would, it would do anything. We actually have a, a fairly good constitutional framework. We do, we, we do have very good laws on the books and you'll note that they're ignored. The court consistently ignores them. They've uh, pulled the right to abortion out of the Constitution somehow, which you look in that document, you're not going to find the right to abortion in there. Uh, it's not a matter of did we have the right laws in place? It is truly a matter of who's enforcing them, because unregenerate man will act like an unregenerate man. Right. The only way to solve that uh, is to preach the gospel that they might be saved and turn away from their sin. Um Telling them to you need to submit to these laws, that's good in a sense, but it's not. It's, it's just not going to solve what you think it's going to solve. Yeah, no, it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Seek to have God's blessing on our state, or are we going to live in rebellion against God? This nation, imperfect as the men were, Every historical document says wanted God's blessing on this nation. And they weren't talking about a law. They were talking about 
the God of Abraham. And so the question is, where are you going to get that law? You get all the unregenerate men together. Well, I, I guess to be even to be fair, some of our founding fathers, we would have not counted as Christians in the first place. And some mm -hmm. of them believed in Deus God, not the God mm -hmm. of uh, not the, the God of uh, covenants, the God of mm -hmm. uh, providence. It was more like the God of de uh, deism, which is very involved in the world. So if you want to get uh, specific, you could go down that road. Well, and he's, he's put a, a dichotomy here, right? You need to either. What was it? What was it? He just said that you're either going to be acting in rebellion or what was the other thing he said? Oh, the, the point being that he's 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 saying that it's sort of inconsistent with his last point, right? That you need to either be submitting to the God and that it's not the God that's Allah, it's the Christian God. You either need to be sitting in God or you're in rebellion against him and you're not going to be blessed, right? But he just got off saying. We're, we're not mixing church and state. Well, how is it that you can have a nation that the state, like, it's not the church, right? They're not being blessed, but they're following the moral law and God's going to bless that. You know what I mean? That is, um, it's not state-enforced Christianity, so you can be whatever religion you want, and yet, because we're all being moral, God's going to bless that. God is not going to bless a nation of um, whatever the religion, just because they're following aspects of the moral law, it's, it's not going to happen. It, 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 it seems inconsistent with the last point. Well, especially if you're using covenantal language to apply to the United States of America, mm -hmm. then we have a, yeah, we have a bigger problem. Yeah. We're going to get to that here in a second. Other, and they come up with a law for unregenerate men. That'll be rebellion. That'll be chaos. Where do you get the substance of what that law is to be? That's what the question is. And so I, I think it misrepresents what the issue is. What is theonomy? Theonomy is not unregenerate men attempting to apply and submit others to God's law. The only person who's going to submit to God's law is a person who has that law written upon their heart. First, That's true. But that doesn't change the fact that God's law was what allowed God to bless a people, blesses a nation whose God is Yahweh. But then Proverbs says sin is a is a rebuke upon any nation. Well, where is that sin? How do you define what that sin is? It says You're gonna say something, Sean? Uh yeah. So blessed is uh the nation whose God is the Lord, right? That's that doesn't prove his point whatsoever. Um that didn't say blessed is the nation whose law is the Lord's it's blessed is the nation who's who um, whose God is the Lord. And uh, I know you would plan to talk about this, but I'll, I'll bring it up now. Uh, he's, he's quoting from Psalm uh, 33, 12 here, right? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That's talking very specifically about Israel. I don't know how right. you would get generic nations out of that. Um, and he shifts from talking about nations in general to a very mm -hmm. specific nation and a, and a people chosen, which would be Israel and which would yeah. have to be tied to covenantal blessings and curses that yeah. don't apply to nation. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I, I will, well, I, I'll let him talk a little bit more before I get into this, but ultimately uh, the law is not going to have you blessed. Let's just put it that way. Is any nation 
So when the pagan nations broke God's law, that was a stain upon them, according to Scripture. And so, which law was that that they broke? So right. Was, was it? Oh. Were was were it? they breaking? Were they breaking the ceremonial law? Were they breaking the judicial laws of Israel that apply to that specific people, or were they breaking God's moral law? They were breaking God's moral law. Yeah. And of course, and, and that would be Proverbs 14, 34 that he's quoting from sin is a, re a reproach or a stain upon a people, no doubt. But that's not the issue here. The issue is how is God's law mm -hmm. applied to a particular people group? Mm -hmm. And is the reason it was a shame on them because they hadn't instituted good laws or was it because they had done evil? And there, you you might not realize there's a distinction there, but there is there's a mm. distinction there, right? Is it mm -hmm. because they didn't have sin pro, or uh, laws prohibiting adultery, or is it because they were committing adultery? Well, obviously, maybe and in, in perhaps in some sense it was because they uh, uh, didn't have laws against adultery, but primarily it's because they were um, committing adultery. The nation isn't going to be judged when when God judges the nation. I don't think at the forefront it's going to be because they didn't have these laws. It's going to be, no, because you did this. Um, and there, there is a distinction there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a government is to emphasize, you know, to uh, implement the general equity of the moral law, obviously, but yeah, it's what did they not do or what were they specifically doing? And that goes back to the light of nature with the law of God written on the hearts mm -hmm. of unbelievers, right? Mm -hmm. They are suppressing mm -hmm. The truth, yeah. pushing it down, pushing it down. Mm -hmm. Unless you are going to say that it's the law of it's written on the hearts of men that adultery should be punished by stoning, which is what's written in the Mosaic Covenant. How could God judge them for not having done so? So yeah. it's either it is either in the light of nature that adultery requires stoning, or at least at least execution, or it's or it's not, and then they're not going to be judged for not having done that. It's one or the other, but um, yep. and that if it's written in nature, then we don't. Uh, we can still proclaim that uh, it for us to require that we need this strong prophetic word. It, it actually isn't as strong as we needed it to be. Let's put it that way. Right, right. They have what they need to be condemned. Yep. There. Oh yes. And we're almost done. So. Yeah. Your point earlier about blood guilt. Yes. Yeah, that's a short leash. I got to get you some more rope there. <laughs> um, but uh, your point earlier about blood guilt is is well taken because if, if one can step past the secular mockery that is made of God's law and cannot understand what it's reading, frankly, and you just simply go through each element of the law and you go, okay, let's look at the categories that the scripture actually lays out, whether that's blood guiltiness, there's prosperity concepts there. Yeah. If you do this, you will prosper. Guess what? If you don't, you won't. The land will spew you out. Uh, things like that. Then you get into practical things. There's health code there. Mm -hmm. There is building code there. You got leprosy on your wall. Hey, Finan you know, financial issues, financial issues, usury laws, the whole nine years. You go through that and you start to find out this is actually very sensible. And the big thing about each and every point is, is that the Lord hates dishonest scales. 
the law. What he's objecting Justice. to, what Chris is objecting to, isn't the law, isn't the theonomy, it's the carrying out by unequal scales, right. by police officers and judges and the system. And that's what we have, for instance, today, where we have Maxine Waters all upset about January 6th, and yet all of right. her, all her whole party in Congress covers over what she did over the weekend. Yep. And But you go back to God's law, and you start finding out, you know what? If you want to look at this even on a practical level, it makes a lot of sense because it's just. It's just. And if we just simply take that in a serious way instead of all of this unserious childlike behavior by people we're walking... About, we're not talking about Chris there. No, but people <laughs> walking around in adult bodies behaving like little children, Yeah, yeah. you know, maybe we might have a hope in this land. Yeah, well, that, that thing with Samuel was just absolutely astonishing. So that's that. Um, so real quick, I do want to address um, some of what Rich said. So I think a lot of what Rich said we can probably agree with. There are a lot of good things in God's law that can be applicable to today, you know, like health code, like uh, you know how your house should be built in, in terms of safety regulations, things like that. But we still have to go back to making the distinction between the specific positive laws and the absolute moral law. So he talks about, for instance, he talks about the land will spit you out. The land will spit you out. That is covenantal language. You can see this language uh, like Leviticus 18, uh, verse um, 27. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before you for whoever commits any of these abominations the person who commit them shall be cut off from their people cutting off had to do with death cutting off it was covenantal language and in context here leviticus 18 he's talking about uh sexual purity right how you're supposed to conduct yourself and those things would obviously still be applicable because they're grounded in creation and they're tied to the moral law in that respect but in terms of these specific stipulations of the land will vomit you out you'll be cut off from your people um you will be um cut off from the land these are specific covenantal curses that have to do with what we would call a covenant of works and applicable to uh, the old covenant where if you god basically said you do this you live you don't do this you'll die or you'll receive all of these curses along with it and so specifically these were given to the people of israel and applied to them specifically and we have to be very careful we don't take covenantal language or covenantal sanctions and apply them to the United States of America. Um, it's anachronistic. It's exegetically uh, fallacious. Um, and I think it, it doesn't speak to the real issue. It, it misses the point. So we have to be very careful that we make these clear distinctions. As small as they can be, they have important implications if you don't apply them correctly. So we have to be very careful. Yeah, this was actually probably the most problematic section of the video for me because it what what ultimately they boiled it down to is if your nation has these laws you will be blessed and that's as as dan mentioned um that uh that was in the uh a lot of this is in the context of uh the covenant given to israel and i have another verse to read uh from that covenant context deuteronomy 2726 
Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who doesn't do all the laws. We're not seeking that kind of blessing. That kind of blessing never came upon Israel, and it will never come upon any nation because we can't keep all the laws. Yep, that's um, right. But didn't that passage just talk about the people in the land, not Israel? Could be wrong. Uh, what's the distinction there? I'm not sure. So I think he's referring to verse 27. It says, For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were, who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Let's mm -hmm. the land vomit you out when you defile, as it oh. vomited out the Latians that were before you. Oh, so I would say that um, it's actually a little bit more applicable purely because um, Galatians, uh, in Galatians, Paul um, brings out that verse and he's using it in the context of showing how Christ became a curse for us because everybody was under the curse. Therefore, Christ had to become a curse for us. And he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to the Galatians. So ultimately, everybody is under under that curse. But regardless, you're, nobody is going to be see, nobody is going to be blessed by the keeping of the law because you need to keep it perfectly. You would never say you had a friend who was an adulterer, and um, it's starting to tear up their life. Right, their their wife has found out about it. She's threatened to threatened to leave. Um, his children are it's it's destroyed his uh, relationship with his children. Um, it's causing him financial troubles because, um, he's not able to focus at work. He's, 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 he's not doing his job very well. He's worried he's going to get fired. Uh, if that friend came to you as like, my life is a wreck, what do I do? You would never say to that person, oh, you need to keep the law of God so that, um, God will bless you or you'll be blessed by these wise principles. That is the person who says that is a person who does not understand the gospel. You would say to that person, friend, it's far worse than you, you realize. Not only is your life falling apart, you are the wrath of God abides on you for your sin against him. And at that point, you would proclaim the gospel. Christ died for, uh, died for sins, and you, um, by believing in him, your sins have been atoned for, and um, his righteousness has been credited to your account. And you, can, uh, you won't have to face the infinite wrath of God um in hell nobody would ever say you know nobody would ever try to get them to follow the law in order to get their um life to be better to like to be blessed and i don't understand why all of a sudden it becomes on the national level now all of a sudden it's like well, well we need to we need to get people to follow the law so that we live in a a, a better world no like these people need to hear the gospel that's what they need to hear it we're not it's almost, uh, and I, I don't want to impute too much of bad moments, motives here, but it's almost selfish, right? Like, well, we don't want to live in this this uh, this culture, so we need to make sure the culture's better so that God will bless us. Like, we need to be looking out for our neighbor and our neighbor's soul, first and right. foremost. Um, we'll use the law in order to show them their sins so that they can come to a knowledge of the truth, but we're, we're not using the law as an end of its own sake, the law will never get us blessed. It will always get us cursed. And um, one final note on that. Um, there does seem to be this concern. In fact, did you have a um, uh, a tweet from Rich that you also wanted to uh, bring out here? Um, yeah. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Because it's, it's in the context of this. Yep. One second.
but yeah, I think you know to the point of talking about other nations. Yes, other nations certainly um, would be held accountable for this, but there is specific covenantal aspects of this mm -hmm. cursing and blessing that comes specifically with the nation of Israel that cannot be ignored. Um, uh, let me. There we go. So this was from Rich, uh, the guy who just spoke. He said, "I." This was a Facebook post that he made. I think it was last week. Said, I have seen a number of posts over on the Twit machine that object to Christians being concerned about the well-being of the country. The argument is summed up in this one tweet that said, our hope as Christians is not in the American economy. Anyone who is at all familiar with the Pentateuch understands how many times God promised well-being to his people. To divorce God's blessing and the hope thereof from this life and only focus on the next one is myopic. If you disagree with the above, then I expect that you will never again pray for God's hand of watch, care, and protection upon you and yours. All such things are centered in the here and now. So that's a that's a false dichotomy. Um, we can pray because ultimately you could never say um, that you would have to. I just lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, promise being just. People. Well, it, it again, it's using covenantal language, and he's mm -hmm. specifically, you know, talking about how many times God promised well-being to his people, right, which would be primarily uh, the people of the land of Israel. So it's conflating um, mm -hmm. categories of covenantal language and applying that to the United States. If we're going to submit to God's law here in the United States, then we're going to receive blessing, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the people of Israel did, right? Mm -hmm. It's that kind of right. mindset, and that distinction can't be made. While there's certainly uh, righteous sin as a stain upon a people, yes, mm -hmm. nobody's denying that, any nation. However, we cannot uh, apply specific covenant sanctions that apply to a specific people and are now fu fulfilled in Christ and have passed away with that, that people. We cannot use that mm -hmm. as a method of uh, proving that God's law should apply today in a specific sense. Yeah. Oh, we can't do that. Ultimately, like using this logic, you would never be able to claim that somebody was putting their hope too much in this world. You, you, unless you're not willing to pray for God's hand of watch, then, um, you know, you can't ever say that somebody is putting too much hope in this world. And ultimately, we're not to put in, uh, too much hope in this world. No, we're and pilgrims. I think, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's what's be, being missed so much in this conversation about what do we do about the culture? It's like, well, we've, we've got to fix it. Whereas I'm going to quote from the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus speaking, uh, Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um. I get it. America is not headed into a good time. The West is not headed into a good, into a good time. And in nope. one very real sense, to go through that will be painful and unpleasant. But at the same time, we should be rejoicing for the persecution that we have, uh, that we, we go through. And that's a message that I just don't see being preached on very much uh, at the moment, that we, we can and should rejoice um, because of the reward that's ahead of us, not because of our current earthly circumstances. And it really does seem that at least some of the arguments the theonomists use to promote their position is really based on a very worldly 
Like we don't want these bad things to happen to us here and now sort of issue when that's, that's not the way we as Christians should be thinking. If persecution comes upon us, we shouldn't, it, it, it seems so odd to me that we should, we would be sitting around trying to think of what laws there are to fix our situation as opposed to recognizing we're in persecution, rejoicing about it, and then proclaiming the gospel to our persecutors that they might be saved, loving them like Christ loved us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yep, that's um, exactly right. Yeah, ultimately, yep. it always goes back to the gospel. It always yeah, does. at the end of the day. Yeah, that's right, brother. That's right. Well, we are out of time for today. Uh, I know we went much longer than we normally do, but this is a big topic, big discussion um, so it requires some careful thought and we wanted to make sure that we played that entire video, um, uh, through and go through it, but thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope you have a great Lord's day tomorrow and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Take care. God bless.